0: This huge, wonderful novel that seems to encapsulate the whole world comes to an end. Is it the end you're expecting? I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the second half of 2666 by Roberto Bolaño, published in 2004. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together. I'll split the book into two equal halves and discuss the first half on the second Friday of the month and the second part on the last Friday of the month. I'll be sharing your thoughts and mine, asking loads of questions, discussing ideas making predictions and will decide what type of person would recommend the book to if at all i'd love you to read alongside of course you don't have to read anything at all you can audible or just listen to the podcast since i will be summarizing what happens but be aware there will be spoilers you can leave a comment or start a conversation at the bookshook youtube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com i love reading your comments welcome to bookshook So this podcast is all about the second half of 2666 from the dot on page 445 where the new sentence mentions Calais, Santa Catarina. That's exactly halfway. So Magnana breaks into Elsa Fuente's house and manages to track down Miguel Montes' address and then there are two more murdered women and the American consul Abraham Mitchell inquires with Negret about Magnana who has, quote, gone missing. And then we have the seer and she mentions the murders on TV again and Epifanio tells Lalo Cura a reporter was shot before Lalo arrived and in her notebook was Pedro Rengifo's number. And then the reporter Gonzalez realizes the dead are factory girls. There are two deaths of the same hallmark in the mutilation of the breasts, and Epifanio quizzes a friend of a murdered girl called Sandoval, who says she saw her visit a tall, blonde man. And I'm thinking, is this Archimboldi in a wig? He is tall. We find out that Rengifo is a narco, that means a narcotics dealer, and that surprises Lalo Cura. Epifanio investigates a tall blonde. His name is Klaus Haas, the boss at a computer store. And I'm thinking, well, he's got a German name. I'm sure this must be Archimboldi. And his hair is, quote, canary yellow, as if dyed once a week. Of course, this could also be the perfect red herring. So we'll have to wait and see. When Epifanio shakes Haas's hand, he gets the feeling the, quote, blonde man's bones were made of steel. There are two clues that Haas could be Archimboldi. Quote, Klaus Haas was German, but he had acquired American citizenship. And two, he also travelled to the United States every two months, alone, not on a fixed date or in a regular way, except that none of his trips ever lasted more than three days. Now Epiphania visits Haas, he acts very defensively, He is arrested and questioned for the murder of Sandoval who he admits seeing in the store. And I'm thinking he seems too young maybe for Archimbalding. In the lockup Haas says, quote, a giant is coming. Other prisoners try to attack Haas but he gets the upper hand. Now, I'm thinking about the book's title now, 2666. Could this be two devils, Archimboldi and Amalfitano? We'll have to see. Haas is outraged by the sexual exploits of his fellow inmates, and Sergio Gonzalez, a Mexican reporter, calls Haas on the phone. He protests his innocence. This is Haas, of course. And there's another 15-year-old who's murdered with, again, these breast attacks, which is a signature. So it can't be Haas who's doing the murders. Then there's another gruesome death. The officers talk of the killer as they, or those people, i.e. in the plural. And then Haas complains that he can't have killed Sandoval because women have been killed with the same signature whilst he's been in prison. And then there's more deaths. Ugh. The seer goes on TV again and Haas feels like there is a big killer on the outside there are many more murders it's like a whole catalogue of murders and to me it's getting a little bit boring actually all these constant murders Shamal is castrated in Santa Teresa prison he murdered the daughter of a quote man with money and Hass certainly shows that he has power Lalo Cura shows signs of being a great cop But his superiors do put him down There are two young girls 13 and 15 year olds Are found dead and tortured And raped There is a boxing magazine at the scene and I'm thinking could the killer be related to boxing In some way Could it be Merolino The houses near to where the girls are found belong to two different narcos, Rengifo and Capuzzano, and the apartment where the girls were found were tenanted by Javier Ramos, but there's no sign of him. It is reported that Santa Teresa is the capital of snuff films. Haas is accused of paying a gang to murder people that resembled his victims, but he denies this. I'm thinking there's lots of info dump, void of poetry. Every now and then poetry does crop up. E.g. Campos describing how she'd like to flee to Paris, but it's rather rare. The narrator describes the filming of a faked snuff film. And then there's more horrific murder and rape victims the three medical examiners are introduced and the police tell a catalogue of chauvinist jokes Lalacura, who could be our hero reflects on his sad family history and then Sergio Gonzalez is allowed to write another piece on the murders he chats with Haas the victim's parents and Yolanda Palacio from the Santa Teresa Department of Sex Crimes and he also goes to try and see the seer but he ends up going to dinner with Rinaldo and the seer's lawyer, Patricio and then there's another murder. Murder, Aurora Cruz. The amount of semen at the crime scene would be abnormal for one person, so I'm thinking there must be two devils at work, possibly. Martinez interviews the seer, and there's a murdered girl who says she was packed into a car and he looked, quote, like a pig just before she expires. There's another 30 year old who's murdered, the husband admits the murder, and I'm thinking maybe the serial killer is definitely attacking younger women. Haas makes a statement as to who killed Sandoval, who he is accused of killing, and, quote, at least 30 other young women. It is someone called Antonio Uribe, but no one's heard of him. Kessler, from American FBI, is called in to investigate the murders. And there's another victim who is half buried, and I'm reminded now of the Madonna of Guadalupe, with half an eye open, half an eye closed... He goes on a racket of the shanty towns near the Maquiadores, and he was invited to Mexico by the congresswoman Plata. And we hear a little of her backstory, in particular her girlfriend Kelly. Now, in prison, Haas says, quote, Antonio Uribe started the killing and his cousin Daniel disposed of the bodies due to, quote, arousal. He says they fled six months ago, although, quote, there are people who claim to have seen them in Tucson, Phoenix, even Los Angeles, said Haas. How can we verify this? Very simple, he says. Get their parents' phone numbers and ask where they are, said Haas, with a smile of triumph. Kessler does a recce of Chero Estrella, which is a notorious murder area, and then the history of Plata continues. Structurally, we've now, in another one of these cycles of four chapters, we have Platyter's history, we have Kessler's Reque, we have Hass's press conference, and we have a description of the murders. Kessler visits El Chile, an illegal dump, and it's clear there's a massive drug problem in the local population. And Platter continues to tell Inspector Martinez about her friend Kelly. I'm thinking maybe this is a stupid question, but is Kelly one of the deceased? And now that the Congresswoman is involved, she is able to hire some big powerful hitters like Kessler. Haas's lawyer sobs, Haas is her beloved. And Platter describes her rise to Congresswoman. Kessler gives some lectures at a Santa Teresa university and the Eurobays can't be found. Platter says that, quote, Kelly ran high class parties and one night she phones saying she's in trouble. And then a reporter, Mercado, covering the crimes goes missing and Kelly disappears after a party at a, quote, ranch. I'm thinking maybe perhaps this is Merolino's ranch, although ranches are quite common in rich Mexico. The party was of a banker run by Salazar Crespo who laundered money for Santa Teresa cartel and he has, quote, old friends in Plata's PRI political party. Mary Sue Bravo, a reporter, investigates missing Macado, and Congresswoman Plata starts inquiring in Santa Teresa and she talks of some strange reflections and we've seen some strange reflections before in the first part. Daniel Uribe is found in Tucson, quote, it's a pack of lies, what has, says, and Platter learns of some other cases. Quote, "As I learned about other cases however as I heard other voices my rage began to assume what you might call mass stature my rage became collective or the expression of something collective my rage when it allowed itself to show saw itself as the instrument of vengeance of thousands of victims honestly i think i was losing my mind those voices i heard voices never faces or shapes came from the desert in the desert i roamed with a knife in my hand my face was reflected in the blade i had white hair and sunken cheeks covered with tiny scars" And there's that reflection again. And she learns of these organised orgies. Quote, Salazar Crespo's parties would be held either of the two ranches he owned. Showpiece properties, pieces of land that the rich bought and neither cultivated nor used to keep livestock. Just expanses of land, a sprawling house in the middle, a big living room and lots of bedrooms. Sometimes but not always a pool. They aren't comfortable places really. There's no feminine touch. In the north they call them nacaranchos because lots of drug traffickers own similar estates, less like ranches than garrisons in the middle of the desert, some even with watchtowers where they post their best marksmen. Sometimes these ranchos sit empty for long stretches of time. One employee might be left there without keys to the main house with orders to do little to wander the barren, stony grounds to watch so that packs of wild dogs don't take up residence. All these poor men are given is a cell phone and some vague instructions that they gradually forget. According to Lawyer, it isn't unusual for one of them to die with no one the wiser, or simply to disappear, drawn by the Simurg, the mythical giant flying creature of the desert. Then all at once, the Nakarancho stirs to life. First arrive are some of the peons, say three or four, in a combi, and they spend a day getting the big house ready. Then come the bodyguards, the muscle, in their black Suburbans or Spirits or Peregrinos, and the first thing they do when they show up, besides strut around, is set a security perimeter. Finally, the boss and his right-hand men make their appearance. Armoured Mercedes Benzes or Porsches snaking through the desert. At night, the lights never go out. You see all kinds of cars, even Lincoln Continentals and vintage Cadillacs, ferrying people to and from the ranch. Trackers loaded with meat, baked goods and Chevy Astras, and music and shouting all night long. were the parties as lawyer told me that Kelly would help to plan on her trips north. What a scary description of these garrison ranches Ugh. Then we go on to part five, the part about Archimbaldi Now, Archimbaldi's mother is blind in one eye, a little bit like the Guadalupe Madonna. His father is lame, he lost a leg in the war, and in the military hospital he watches a bandaged man. This is the father. The next morning, the bandaged man is gone. And I don't know whether you've ever read Catch-22, but it really reminds me of that scene with the bandaged man. Quite a horrific idea. There's a description of Hans Reiter or Archimbaldi. Quote, In 1920, Hans Richter was born. He seemed less like a child than like a strand of seaweed. Canetti and Borges, too, I think, two very different men, said that just as the sea was the symbol of mirror or mirror of the English, the forest was the metaphor the Germans inhabited. Hans Richter defied this rule from the moment he was born. He didn't like the earth, much less forest. He didn't like the sea either, or what ordinary mortals called the sea, which is really only the surface of the sea, waves kicked up by the wind that have gradually become the metaphor for defeat and madness what he liked was the seabed that other earth with its plains that weren't plains and valleys that weren't valleys and cliffs that weren't cliffs when his one-eyed mother bathed him in a wash tub, the child Hans Ryder always slipped from her soapy hands and sank to the bottom with his eyes open. And if her hands hadn't lifted him back up to the surface, he would have stayed there contemplating the black wood and the black water where little particles of his own filth floated, tiny bits of skin that travelled like submarines toward an inlet the size of an eye, a calm, dark cove, although there was no calm, and all that existed was movement, which is the mask of many things, calm among them. The view from the bottom of a bath under the sea. He isn't interested in the surface, but what goes on underneath. Brilliant writing. And he develops this love of seaweed and diving. His father is obviously very xenophobic, and he lists dozens of people who are, quote, swine. Writer is rescued from drowning by Vogel, a tourist, and Vogel chides himself for initially thinking writer was just some seaweed. Writer has strange names for things. For example, there's a town of chattering girls and he doesn't really seem to be able to talk properly. He works dusting books in a baron's house and he sees the baron's nephew steal the silver cutlery. They befriend each other, and the nephew, Halder, who's been stealing this cutlery, persuades Reiter to read litchi, which is literature, books, uh, rather than reef which are reference books, which are mostly on the sea in Reiter's case. Hulder introduces him to medieval Parzival, and he loves it. And we have this quote on Eschenbach, who wrote Parzival in the 1300s. Quote, Wolfram's pride... I fled the pursuit of letters. I was untutored in the arts. A pride that stands aloof, a pride that says, Die, all of you, but I'll live, confers on him a halo of dizzying mystery, of terrible indifference which attracted the young Hans the way a giant magnet attracts a slender nail. Hulda helps writer get a job in Berlin, and they befriend a Japanese person called Nisa. Quote, sometimes, however, as they sat on a cafe terrace or around a dark cabaret table, an obstinate silence descended inexplicably over the trio. They seemed suddenly to freeze, lose all sense of time, and turn completely inward as if they were bypassing the abyss of daily life, the abyss of people, the abyss of conversation, and had decided to approach a kind of a lakeside region, a late romantic region where the borders were clocked from dusk to dusk, 10, 15, 20 minutes, an eternity like. Like the minutes of those condemned to die like the minutes of women who've just given birth and are condemned to die who understand that more time isn't more eternity and nevertheless wish with all their souls for more time and their whales are birds that come flying every so often across the double lakeside landscape so calmly like luxurious egressences or heartbeats then naturally the three men would emerge stiff from the silence and go back to talking about inventions women Finnish philology the building of highways across the so zen nisa is obviously a very good influence they befriend a lady called greta and they go to lots of parties of hers and there's an orchestral conductor that comes to the party Quote, musicians often visited Greta, including an orchestra conductor who claimed that music was the fourth dimension. The fourth dimension, he liked to say, encompasses the three dimensions and consequently puts them in their place. That is, it obliterates the dictatorship of the three dimensions and thereby obliterates the three-dimensional world we know and live in. The fourth dimension, he said, was expressible only through music, Bach, Mozart. Beethoven. He continues according to the director, life qua life in the fourth dimension was of an unimaginable richness, etc, etc but the truly important thing was the distance from which one, immersed in this harmony, could contemplate human affairs with equanimity, in a word and free of the artificial travails that oppressed the spirit devoted to work and creation to life's only transcendent truth the truth that creates more and more life an inexhaustible torrent of life and happiness and brightness. The conductor talked and talked about the fourth dimension and some symphonies he had conducted or planned soon to conduct, never once taking his eyes off his listeners. His eyes were like the eyes of a hawk that flies and delights in its flight, but that also maintains a watchful gaze, capable of discerning even the slightest movement down below on the scrambled pattern of earth. Perhaps the conductor was slightly drunk. Perhaps the conductor was tired and his thoughts were elsewhere. Perhaps the conductor's words didn't at all express his state of mind, his manner of being, his worshipful regard of the artistic phenomenon. He could... Just be drunkenly rambling, of course. And hence. Hans- outwits and confuses this conductor on page 666. Does that mean anything? Probably not. Quote, What would those who lived in the 10th dimension, that is? This is Hans speaking. That is, those who perceive 10 dimensions think of music, for example. What would Beethoven mean to them? What would Mozart mean to them? What would Bach mean to them? Probably the young writer answered himself, Music would just be noise, noise like crumpled pages, noise like burned books. At this point, the conductor raised a hand and said, or rather whispered confidentially, Don't speak of burned books, my dear young man. To which Hans responded, Everything is a burned book, my dear maestro. Music, the tenth dimension, the fourth dimension, cradles, the production of bullets and rifles, westerns, all burned books. And the conductor, when he leaves, says that Hans is, quote, A time bomb, no question about it. An untrained, powerful mind, irrational, illogical, capable of exploding at the moment, least expected, which was untrue. Hans Reiter is ultimately drafted into World War II. He is denied submarine service because of his height, and his captain doesn't believe he is afraid of anything. There's the tale of a soldier who loses himself in the underground tunnels that is recounted. And ironically, this soldier dies four days later by being run over by a German car. Writer swims underwater in the sea an awful lot, and he thinks of deserting the army. Now, looking back on those murders, I wonder if the killer will never be found. I'm thinking that we never might find out about them. Which is, I've got to get over that feeling <laughs> of closure that I want for those murders. Writer bumps into the daughter of his former employer, the Baron, at a lavish castle party that he is stationed to protect, and the guests discuss art and culture. Quote, general von Berenberg said, Culture was Bach, and that was enough for him. One of his general staff officers said, Culture was Wagner, and that was enough for him too. The other general staff officer said, Culture was Goethe, and as the general had said, that was enough for him, sometimes more than enough. The life of a man is comparable only to the life of another man. The life of a man he said is only long enough to fully enjoy the works of another man. General Entrescu, who was highly amused by the general staff officer's claim, said that for him, on the contrary, culture was life, not the life of a single man. Or the work of a single man, but life in general, any manifestation of it, even the most vulgar. And then he talked about the backdrops of some Renaissance paintings, and he said those landscapes could be seen anywhere in Romania. And he talked about Madonnas and said that at that precise instant he was gazing on the face of a Madonna, more beautiful than any Italian Renaissance painter's Madonna. Baroness von Zumper flushed. And finally he talked about Cubism and modern painting and said that any abandoned wall or bombed out wall was more interesting than the most famous cubist painting. Never mind surrealism he said which couldn't hold a candle to the dream of a single illiterate romanian peasant For I steal into their dreams, he said I steal into their most shameful thoughts I'm in every shiver, every spasm of their souls I steal into their hearts I scrutinise their most fundamental beliefs I scan their irrational impulses Their unspeakable emotions I sleep in their lungs during the summer And their muscles during the winter And all of this I do without the least effort Without intending to Without asking or seeking it out Without constraints Driven only by love and devotion And then they chat about the origins of Dracula And then General Entresco thinks of the Jesus story, quote, Entresco said it wasn't strange if one cast a dispassionate glance over the great deeds of history, that a hero should be transformed into a monster or the worst sort of villain, or that he should unintentionally succumb to invisibility in the same way that a villain or an ordinary person or a good-hearted mediocrity should become, with the passage of the centuries, a beacon of wisdom, a magnetic beacon capable of casting spell over millions of human beings without having done anything to justify such adoration. In fact, without even having inspired to it or desired it. Did Jesus Christ, who apparently knew everything, know that the world was round too? round and to the east live the chinese no although of course in a way having an idea of the world is easy everybody has one generally an idea restricted to one's village bound to the land to the tangible and mediocre things before one's eyes and this idea of the world petty limited crusted with the grime of the familiar tends to persist and acquire authority and eloquence with the passage of time Hans Reiter and some of his soldier friends spy General Entresco making love to Baroness von Zumpe and it's all very X-rated. Reiter tries to find Halder but his family home is owned by a civil servant. The oldest daughter is called Ingeborg Bauer and she kisses Reiter. And she also talks about the Aztec sacrifices As the blood of a new victim spread across the skylight of transparent obsidian, the light turned red and black, a very bright red and a very bright black, and then not only were the silhouettes of the Aztecs visible, but also their features, features transfigured by the red and black light, as if the light had the power to personalise each man or woman. Writer is involved in fierce combat again, and this time with the Russians. He wins an iron cross for his bravery, but is badly injured. And in a house, he finds the hiding place of a Jew called Boris Ansky. And Ansky, he learns, served in World War II. Writer reads his notes. So Ansky befriended a science fiction writer called Ivanov, and we hear his history. He belongs to the Communist Party. And here I'm thinking it's such a weavy, dreamlike narrative. We have Haas, and then he finds this work by Ansky, or the notes by Ansky, and then we hear about Ivanov, who inspires Ansky. There's almost a free association of characters, or each character generates a blossoming into a new kind of world of characterization. It's a very interesting way of writing. Anski joins this communist party and recounts a tale of a hunter who loses his sexual organs and quote imposes his desire on reality. Ivanov writes a novel called Twilight that becomes popular and there is a detailed plot summary. And is there a word like ekphrasis that describes a work of literature rather than a work of art? Question mark. If you know the answer do let me know. Ivanov's books get banned and he is sent to prison and then shot, and writer reads about an Italian painter called Archimbaldi in Ansky's notebook, and Ansky is reminded of Ivanov's story of Soviet anthropologists who visit a tribe in Borneo because of a, quote, communication issue, and unfortunately one of the Soviet anthropologists gets killed. There are scattered notes about Anski's flight and the death of his father. And writer loves receiving letters from his sister Lottie. Quote, They were letters in which she talked about the things that had happened to her, about the village, school, the dresses she wore, him. You're a giant, said little Lottie. At first writer was disconcerted by this, but then he thought that for a child, and a child as sweet and impressionable as Lottie, someone of his height was the closest thing to a giant she had ever seen. Your steps echo in the forest, said Lottie in her letters. The birds of the forest hear the sound of your footsteps and stop singing. These little tokens of paper must have meant so much to soldiers in the war. I'm thinking these sort of fragments of family, of love in the war, in the middle of this mayhem writer is really bringing this anski character alive in his head just through these assorted writings his relationship to anski is a bit like my relationship to the whole of this novel these sort of fragments these semblances making up a whole world writer imagines sinking beneath the water to escape the gunfire of the russians and this reminds me a little bit of Toru, if you remember from a Norwegian wood, imagining himself in the murky depths in the bed of a river after one of his friends dies. General Entresco is discovered naked, he is being deserted by his Romanian troops, and he is nailed to a cross Writer ends up in Germany, an American prisoner of war camp. He meets Stammer, a German official who's responsible for a transport of 500 Greek Jews. Initially, he puts them to work, but soon he gets the horrifying order from a, quote, adolescent voice to, quote, dispose of them. Quote, Stammer says, "'But I'd like to receive the order in writing.' "'I heard a pealing laugh at the other end of the line.' It could be my son's laugh, I thought, a laugh that conjured up country afternoons, blue rivers full of trout, and the scent of fistfuls of flowers and grasses. Don't be naive, said the voice without a hint of arrogance. These orders are never issued in writing. How horrific. I'm assuming at the moment that Stammer is an honest narrator, but who knows. Stammer follows the orders with the help of the police, and writer finds Stammer strangled in his prison cell quote when Samer talked to Ryter the police chief and the fire chief stood to one side several feet from them as if they didn't want to meddle in their former boss's affairs one morning Samer's body was found halfway between the tent and the latrines someone had strangled him Writer is allowed to leave the camp and goes to Cologne where he meets a former girlfriend, Ingeborg Bauer, if you remember, the one who talked about the Aztecs and lived in Halder's family home. He and Ingeborg begin a relationship and he tells her that he killed a man and the man was Sama, the killer of the Jews. So Reiter did kill Sama. I didn't see that coming at all. Ingeborg is only given three months to live But she makes a recovery And writer finishes his novel and hires a typewriter The owner used to be a writer until he, quote, gave up literature He recounts his fascinating history Writer types up his novel and tries to get a publisher And one publisher, Mickey Bittnell Who is an ex-Paras, describes in horrifying detail Carpet bombing Archimbaldi helps some paratroopers with a shipment of bananas. Now, he's taken on the name of this Italian artist, Archimbaldi. He's calling himself Benno von Archimbaldi. He changes his name, as I say, to protect himself from any war crimes, especially Sama's murder. Mr Bubis agrees to publish his book... And we have Mr. Bubis's history. Interestingly, Mr. Bubis dies, so who is this Mrs. Bubis at the beginning of the novel? Well, we soon find out that he marries a young woman in her early thirties, who turns out to be Baroness von Zumper. He tells her what happened to Entrescu, and they make love. Archimbaldi writes book two, called The Endless Rose, and Mr. Bubis raves about it and visits the critic Lothar, Junger, but he's not a fan. Archimbaldi publishes a fourth book, Rivers of Europe, and Ingeborg is ill with tuberculosis. Archimbaldi goes on to write a fifth book. This book he writes very quickly, and it reminds Ingeborg of a typist in her youth called Mrs Dorothea at her father's office. Quote, and this is Ingeborg speaking to Archimbaldi... I understood that there could be music in anything. Mrs. Dorothea's typing was so quick, so particular, there was so much of Mrs. Dorothea in her typing that despite the noise or the clamor, or the rhythmic beat of more than 60 typists working at once, the music that flowed from the oldest secretary's typewriter rose far above the collective composition of her office mates without imposing itself on them, but rather adjusting to them, shepherding them, frolicking with them. Sometimes it seemed to reach the skylights, other times it wound along at floor level, brushing the ankles of the visitors and the boys in shorts. Sometimes it even allowed itself the luxury of slowing down, and then Mrs. Dorothea's typewriter was like a heart, a giant heart beating in the middle of the fog and chaos but these moments were scarce mrs dorothea liked speed and her typing was unusually ahead of the other typing as if she were blazing a path in the middle of a dark jungle dark dark ingeborg is very ill she runs off into the mountains and archimbaldi looks for her and when he finds her she says quote, look at the stars all this light is dead. All this light was emitted thousands and millions of years ago. It's the past, you see. When these stars cast their light, we didn't exist. Life on Earth didn't exist. Even Earth didn't exist. This light was cast a long time ago. It's the past. We're surrounded by the past. Everything that no longer exists or exists only in memory or guesswork is there now above us, shining on the mountains in the snow. And we can't do anything to stop it. "'An old book is the past, too,' said Archimbaldi. "'A book written and published in 1789 is it the past. "'Its author no longer exists, neither does its printer "'or the ones who read it first or the time when it was written. "'But the book, the first edition of that book, "'is still here, like the pyramids of the Aztecs,' said Archimbaldi. "'I hate first editions and pyramids, "'and I hate those bloodthirsty Aztecs,' said Ingeborg. "'But the light of the stars makes me dizzy. "'It makes me want to cry,' said Ingeborg, "'her eyes damp with madness.'" Their landlord Loiber finally admits to murdering his wife in quote, the ravine. He tells Archimboldi to tell Ingeborg the truth. Now Ingeborg drowns, and the body is never recovered. Four years later, the Baroness and Archimboldi have a sexual relationship in Venice. Archimboldi visits Bubis, and Bubis comments on posterity. Quote, they talked about some writers who had no ethical sense, self-confessed and happy plagiarists who hid expressions of mingled fear and outrage behind a cheerful mask. Writers prepared to cling to any reputation with the certainty that they would last live on in posterity, any posterity, which made the copy editors and the other employees laugh and even prompted a resigned smile from Bubis, since no one knew better that posterity was a vaudeville joke audible only to those with front row seats. And then a copy editor gets a book of famous literature errors, and they discuss this in depth. Quote, and here's an example of one of these literature errors. Quote, with his hands clasped behind his back, Henri strolled about the garden reading his friend's novel. And that's from Le Cataclysme by Rosny. And then they discuss how he may have had a special contraption that holds the book for him. And I'm thinking, why are all these non-sequiturs listed? Is it a comment on trying to see any kind of truth or posterity in literature? What do you think? Perhaps it raises the question of how important the activity of the reader is to expound in his or her own imagination on the written text. And at this point, I'm also thinking... I'm not going to work out who those two devils are, even if that's what 2666 means. Who is the murderer? Maybe this is Bellano's point. Sometimes we just don't know the answers. One of the non-sequiturs is, quote, silently the corpse awaited the autopsy. It's kind of how I feel trying to analyse this book left by Bellano 25 years ago. Maybe the clues to the murders just won't be found. Maybe the book's meaning cannot be unpicked. Anyway, this quote really reminds me of the Madonna of Guadalupe. Have a listen to this quote just after that section. Quote, But my favourite is "Our back," said the copy editor. He must be German, said the secretary. That's a good one. Quote, With one eye he read, with the other he wrote. It wouldn't be out of place in a biography of Goethe, said the Swiss boy. Leave Goethe alone, said the head of publicity. There we go again, that Madonna of Guadalupe. One eye he read, the other he wrote. And the scene ends with, quote... Which one is your favourite? asked Bubis The Balzac, said Archimbaldi Ah, that's a great one, said the copy editor And the Swiss boy recited quote, I can hardly see any more Said the poor blind woman He writes another book called Inheritance And Bubis receives quote, Saint Thomas And then another book is received from A Greek island called Icaria Archimbordi finally gets a computer and goes on the internet and he looks up details about a man called Popesco who is the secretary of the crucified Entresco Quote In a few deaf moves Moves strongly tinged with the absurd He insinuated himself into murky business deals In which the underworld espionage The church and work permits mingled Money flowed in, buckets of money But he kept working He managed teams of undocumented Romanians Then Hungarians and Czechs And that's Popesco after the war Perhaps he becomes the murderer Then, quote, one day Popesco receives the visit of a crippled captain formerly of the Romanian 4th Army Corps, which had been under the command of Entresco. And Popesco orders this captain's murder for being a witness to Entresco's crucifixion and not acting. He says, quote, throw this one in the seine. Popesco goes on to marry a Central American actress Ascension Rees And he promises to help her country But dies 15 years later Quote, asleep on a bed of roses Archimbaldi is invited by an SAS to go to a French retreat for old writers, but it transpires that it's actually an asylum, so he leaves. Archimbaldi then inquires of the Baroness whether she has news of her cousin, Hugo Holder, but there is none. And now we hear about Archimbaldi's sister, Lottie. She's desperate to find her missing brother during the war. She hasn't seen him since the war ended, And he appears one night And then we hear about Lottie She goes out with Werner Haas Who proposes And they get married And have a baby called Klaus Klaus Haas Exclamation mark So Klaus Haas Is Archimboldi's nephew They're living in Paderborn, Germany And according to his mother Quote They were both tall and thin But Klaus's hair was much blonder Than her brother's And his eyes might be a brighter blue So there is a resemblance Are Klaus and Archimbali the two devils in the novel's title? Klaus travels to America because there was, quote, no future in Germany or Europe. And Werner dies, and after a long time of no news from America, Klaus's lawyer phones to say he's in prison. Lottie hires a translator called Ingrid, and they travel together to Santa Teresa to see Klaus. And then they travel again to see him in 1996. Klaus is accused of four murders, but in 1998, a mistrial is declared. Klaus's lawyer, Isabella Santalaya, is obviously deeply in love with Klaus. Lotte travels back to Mexico in 2001 remember Lotte is his mother quote while she waited at the Frankfurt airport for the flight to LA she went into a bookshop and bought a book and a few magazines Lotte wasn't a good reader whatever that means and if every once in a while she bought a book it was usually the kind written by actors when they retire or when it's been a long time since they've made a movie or biographies of famous people all those books by TV personalities supposedly full of interesting stories but in fact with no stories at all this time However, by mistake or because she was in a hurry not to miss her flight she bought a book called The King of the Forest by someone called Ben O'Van Archimbaldi the book no more than 150 pages long was about a one-legged father and a one-eyed mother and their two children a boy who liked to swim and a girl who followed her brother to the cliffs as the plane crossed the Atlantic Lotte realised in astonishment that she was reading a part of her childhood the style was strange the writing was clear and sometimes even transparent but the way the stories followed one after another didn't lead anywhere. All that was left were the children, their parents, the animals, some neighbours, and in the end, all that was really left was nature, a nature that dissolved little by little in a boiling cauldron until it vanished completely. So there we go, quote, the stories that followed one another didn't lead anywhere. Maybe... This story that I'm reading doesn't need anywhere. She phones Mrs. Bubis. Mrs. Bubis says, quote, you were a very blonde, pale child. So she remembers her. Archimbaldi appears at Lottie's home. And there we go. The novel ends. One of the main questions, will we find Archimbaldi? Well, the critics didn't, but we certainly did. We had a whole chapter devoted to him. And did we find the murderer? possibly it's Haas, but he seems he seems very dodgy but then there were lots of murders that happened whilst he was in jail but he obviously knows something i think there's obviously a lot of police corruption the murders are not nicely resolved and packaged up chucho flores and his coterie probably had a lot to do with it as well all those snuff films he was really into filmmaking I did enjoy the book. There were certain very memorable sections, for example, The Madonna of Guadeloupe and The Sears Reflections. I'd probably recommend it to someone who's not afraid of very, very long books, someone who is in it for the reading experience and not for some kind of finality or definitive resolutions. There's so much beautiful writing in this book. I've tried to quote from all my favourite parts. I really hope you enjoyed the book too. And I would love to know your opinions on the book. How did you feel about the ending? There were a few ideas that came in the second half, which I wouldn't mind talking about. There were, for example, those optical tricks. We had those mirrors in Platter's hotel room. Do you remember... Quote, I tried to sleep, but I couldn't. I spent a whole while looking out the window at the city's dark buildings, the yards and the streets, empty except for the occasional new-looking car. I paced the room. I noticed there were two mirrors, one at one end and the other by the door, and they didn't reflect each other. But if you stood in a certain place, you could see one mirror in the other. What you couldn't see was me. Strange, I said to myself. The more I studied the mirrors, the more uneasy I felt. And we have got those knife reflections in the desert, which I quoted from earlier. And then... Archimboldi's reversible picture Quote, the Milanese painter's technique Struck him as happiness personified The end of semblance, Arcadia Before the coming of man Not all of the paintings of course Because the roast for example was like a horror painting A reversible canvas that hung one way Looked like a big metal platter of roast meats Including a suckling pig and a rabbit With a pair of hands, probably a woman's Or an adolescent's, trying to cover the meat So it won't get cold And hung the other way, showed the bust of a soldier In helmet and armour with a bold satisfied smile Missing some teeth The terrible smile of an old mercenary Who looks at you, writes Anski And his gaze is even more terrible than his smile As if he knew things about you that you never expected A lawyer or high official with his head made of pieces of small game And his body of books was also like a horror painting But the paintings of the four seasons were pure bliss Everything in everything, writes Anski As if Archamboli had learned a single lesson But one of vital importance really reminds me of the magic disc. He goes on, when I'm sad or in low spirits, I close my eyes and think of Archimbaldi's paintings and the sadness and gloom evaporate as if a strong wind, a mentholated wind, that was suddenly blowing across the streets of Moscow. It really reminds me of that wind in the first half that's blowing the diest book that's hung up by Amal Fultano. So we have a platter of meat on one side and a horrifying soldier on the other. I've spoken about the irony of that German soldier who sold his soul to God and only four days later he was killed by a German car. Let's talk a bit about semblance. Ansky reflects on semblance. Quote... Ivanov's fear was of a literary nature, that is, it was the fear that afflicts most citizens who, on fine or dark day, choose to make the practice of writing, and especially the practice of fiction writing, an integral part of their lives. Fear of being no good, also fear of being overlooked, but above all, fear of being no good. Fear that one's efforts and striving will come to nothing, fear of the step that leaves no trace, fear of the forces of chance and nature that wipe away shallow prints, Fear of dining alone and unnoticed. Fear of going unrecognised. Fear of failure and making a spectacle of oneself. But above all, fear of being no good. Fear of forever dwelling in the hell of bad writers. Irrational fears, thought Ansky, especially when the fearful soothed their fears with semblances. As if the paradise of good writers, according to bad writers, were inhabited by semblances. As if the worth or excellence of a work were based on semblances. Semblances that varied, of course, from one era and country to another but there always remain just that, semblances things that only seem and never are things all surface and no depth pure gesture and even the gesture muddled by an effort of will the hair and eyes and lips of Tolstoy and the verse travelled on horseback by Tolstoy and the women deflowered by Tolstoy in a tapestry burned by the fire of seeming this is writer now thinking about semblance. Quote, he began to think about semblance as Anski had discussed it in his notebook and he began to think about himself. He felt free as he never had in his life. And although malnourished and weak, he also felt the strength to prolong as far as possible this impulse towards freedom, towards sovereignty. And yet the possibility that it was all nothing but semblance troubled him. Semblance was an occupying force of reality, he said to himself. Even the most extreme borderline reality, it lived in people's souls and their actions in willpower and in pain in the way memories and priorities were ordered semblance proliferated in the salons of the industrialists and in the underworld it set the rules it rebelled against its own rules in uprisings that could be bloody but didn't therefore cease to be semblance it set new rules National Socialism was the ultimate realm of semblance. As a general rule, he reflected love was also semblance. My love for Lottie isn't semblance. Lottie is my sister, and she's little, and she thinks I'm a giant. But love, ordinary love, the love of a man and a woman, with breakfasts and dinners, with jealousy and money and sadness, is play-acting or semblance. Youth is the semblance of strength. Love is the semblance of peace. Neither youth nor strength nor love nor peace can be granted to me, he said to himself with a sigh, nor can I accept such a gift only anski's wanderings isn't semblance he thought only Ansky at 14 isn't semblance Ansky lived his whole life in rabid immaturity because the revolution the one true revolution is also immature and this made me think of novels how a novel is made up of semblances perhaps what were the striking things that you got from the novel i'd love to know your thoughts on themes that were of interest to you I don't know a huge amount about the Chilean writer Boliano, but Wikipedia does. So he was born in 1953 in Santiago in Chile. He was the son of a truck driver who was also a boxer and a teacher. He and his sister spent their early years in southern and coastal Chile. By his own account, he was skinny, nearsighted and bookish, an unpromising child. who was dyslexic and was often bullied at school where he felt like an outsider. Quote, he came from a lower middle class family. And while his mother was a fan of bestsellers, they were not an intellectual family. He had one young sister. He was 10 when he started his first job selling bus tickets on the Quilpe Valparaiso route. In 1968, he moved with his family to Mexico City, dropped out of school, worked as a journalist and became active in left-wing political causes. He briefly returned to Chile in 1973. A key episode in Boleano's life, mentioned in different forms in several of his works, happened here to help build the revolution by supporting the democratic socialist government of Salvador Allende. After Augusto Pinochet's right-wing military coup against Allende, Boleano was arrested on suspicion of being a terrorist and spent eight days in custody. He was ...rescued by two former classmates who had become prison guards. Boliano describes this experience in the story Dance Card. According to the version of events he provides in this story, he was not tortured as he expected. But, quote, in the small hours I could hear them torturing others. I couldn't sleep and there was nothing to read except a magazine in English that someone had left behind. The only interesting article in it was about a house that had once belonged to Dylan Thomas... He goes on, I got out of that hole thanks to a pair of detectives who have been at high school with me, end quote. The episode is also recounted from the point of view of belliano 's former classmates in the story Detectives. Nevertheless, since 2009, Bellano's Mexican friends from that era have cast doubts on whether he was even in Chile in 1973 at all. Bellano had conflicted feelings about his native country. He was notorious in Chile for his fierce attacks on Isabel Allende and other members of the literary establishment. He didn't fit in Chile, and the rejection that he experienced left him free to say whatever he wanted, which can be a good thing for a writer, commented Chilean-Argentinian novelist and playwright Ariel Dorfman. Now, about 266, Wikipedia says, quote... 2666 was published in 2004, reportedly as a first draft submitted to his publisher after his death. The text of 2666 was the major preoccupation of the last five years of his life when he was facing death from liver problems. At more than 1,100 pages, the novel is divided into five parts, focused on the mostly unsolved and still ongoing serial murders of the fictional Santa Teresa, based on Chuedad Juárez. 2666 depicts the horror of the 20th century through a wide cast of characters, including police officers, journalists, criminals and four academics on a quest to find the secretive, Pynchonesque German writer Benno von Archimbaldi, who also resembles Baliano himself. In 2008, the book won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Fiction. The award was accepted by Natasha Wimmer, the book's translator. In March 2009, The Guardian newspaper reported an additional Part 6 of 2666, was among papers found by researchers going through Bolliano's literary estate. And I should mention that I think this translation by Natasha Wimmer is fantastic. I would like to now talk about November's book, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. This was published in 1970. If you're reading alongside, I'll be reading up to page 107. That's up to the chapter that begins, See Mother, Mother is very nice, etc., etc. A very, very long one word, all in capitals. So just over halfway. Now, I chose this book because I love Toni Morrison's Beloved. It was such a moving and powerful tale, and I've always wanted to read more of her work. I don't know a huge amount about Toni Morrison, other than she's an American, and that she has written beautiful novels where the theme of racism has been explored. At the end of the second podcast, I'll be sure to do some research on her as well. And so here it goes. This is The Bluest Eye, a beautiful blue book and it's got sort of paper chain of people cut out the front so here we go this is the opening here is the house it is green and white it has a red door it is very pretty here is the family mother father dick and jane live in the green and white house they're very happy see jane she has a red dress she wants to play who will play with jane see the cat it goes meow meow come and play come play with jane the kitten will not play see mother Mother is very nice. Mother, will you play with Jane? Mother laughs. Laugh, mother, laugh. See father, he is big and strong. Father, will you play with Jane? Father is smiling. Smile, father, smile. See the dog. Bow wow, goes the dog. Do you want to play with Jane? See the dog run. Run, dog, run. Look, look. Here comes a friend. The friend will play with Jane. They will play a good game. Play, Jane, play. Here is the house. It is green and white. It has a red door. It is very pretty Here it is the family with Father Dick and Jane live in the green and white house. They are very happy. See Jane. She has a red dress. She wants to play. Who will play with Jane? See the cat. It goes meow, meow. Come and play. Come play with Jane. The kitten will not play. See mother. Mother is very nice, mother. Will you play with Jane, mother? Laughs. Laugh, mother. Laugh. See father. He is big and strong. Father, will you play with Jane? Father is smiling. Smile, father. Smile. See the dog. Bow wow goes the dog. Do you want to play? Do you want to play with Jane? See the dog. Run, run. Dog, run. Look, look. Here comes a friend. A friend will play with Jane. They will play a good game. Play, Jane. Play. Here is the house, it is green and white, it has a red door, it is very pretty. Here is the family mother, father, Dick, Jane, Jack live in the green white house. They are very happy. See Jane, he has a dress. She wants to play. He will play with Jane. See the cat. It goes meow, meow. Come and play. Come and play with Jane. The kitten will not play. See mother. Mother is very nice. Mother, will you play with Jane? Mother laugh, laughs. Mother laughs. See father. He is big and strong. Father, will you play with Jane? Father is smiling. Smile, father. Smile. See the dog. Bow, wow. Goes the dog. Do you want to play? Do you want to play with Jane? See the dog? Run, run, dog, run. Look, look, here comes a friend. The friend will play with Jane. They will play a good game. Play, Jane, play. Wow, there we go. So that's the opening. So that's a very interesting opening. It's kind of in three parts. We've got this opening, which is just like the training books you have when you're kind of five or six years old. Here is the house, full stop. It is green and white, full stop. It has a red door, full stop, capital letters, etc. And then the second part doesn't have any punctuation. No, no full stops. It's much more difficult to read. There is no capitalisation. Here is the house, it is green and white, it has a red door, it is very pretty. Here is the family, mother, father, Dick. It's difficult to work out exactly what's going on. And then, in the third part, the author has removed all the spaces, so it's almost impossible to read. This kind of writing is very patriarchal, I guess, at at the beginning. Jane is playing nicely, the mother is laughing, the father is big and strong there's this very patriarchal society or at least the ideology is that family unit with pets and the dog running and they're going to play a good game and jane's going to play and everyone's being good and it kind of sort of breaks down this sort of break breaking down of language and the meaning kind of becomes very very difficult to understand it's almost as if the person reading it is going into themselves somehow they're, they're reading it and then they're losing all sense of their ability to make sense of the language so all the things which you grasp for in order to make sense of language are falling away so the capitalization the full stops and I just wonder whether that is a reflection of maybe the person that's reading it maybe the things that the structures in society that should be helping are actually hindering in some way by being removed I'm guessing it's a very interesting opening (laughs) and I'm looking forward to reading it Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. The email is bookshook at yahoo.com or you can leave a comment on the Bookshook YouTube channel. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. I look forward to discussing the first part of The Bluest Eye at the next episode of Bookshook on the second Friday of November. That's the 12th. See you then.